Will you take your Bibles out that are in front of you or the ones you brought with you? And turn with me to the Gospel of John. I'm going to read our text first. Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 4. And all the way towards the end of chapter 4, starting with verse 46. And if you have the ones that are in the pews, this should sound similar. Verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down now before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, should be one, one o'clock. The fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Did you catch there at the end? It said the second sign that Jesus had done since he came from Judea to Galilee. Um, we, you didn't know it, but secretly we actually started this series back in January when we, when we talked about that first sign, remember talking about the wedding at Cana and Jesus turning water into wine. We're going to be taking a little trip through the Gospel of John um, as we move towards Easter, which comes at the end of next month. Seven signs in the Gospel of John. Uh, the, the Synoptic Gospels talk about miracles. John talks about signs because these are signs that point us somewhere. We'll talk more about the signs as we go through the series. But today uh, we're going to start that. And I just want to um, just give you a heads up. This is an invitation to join in your personal time at home in reading the, the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. It's a beautiful one. If you come next week, we're going to be handing out uh, a free copy to, to families or however many we need. Um, of John's gospel in one of my favorite contemporary translations. So you just take home a thin little thing and you can follow along in John. It's really good. Also makes a great thing to hand someone else. So if you want to invite, that's a good thing too. So uh, join us in reading John. We're going to be moving rather quickly as we look at these seven signs, but uh, always worth reading the whole gospel again in John. So now to get started, I wanna, uh, we're going to have uh, a little fun together, uh, hopefully. There, when I think back to high school, I had, um, I had a subject that was one of my favorites. I wonder if you might be able to guess what it was. Uh, I had a few classes that were my favorites. Well, this one was taught by the English teacher. Uh, Paul is not here this morning, but um, the English teacher. But it wasn't literature that he taught that I loved so much. That came later. I didn't really like literature classes in high school. But for some reason, I loved grammar. Yeah, um, 
I think in preaching they say this is something you're not supposed to do. I think I just opened up a gulf between some of you and, and me, but that's okay. Um, I loved grammar in, in my high school classes, and so I, I want us to do a little bit of that this morning. This, I promise there is a method to this madness. Um, see if you can remember this. Remember, remember diagramming sentences and parts of speech, nouns, adjectives? Yeah, some of you are going, yes, I do. You're having flashbacks right now. Let's try this. The dog, my worst grade in school was handwriting, so forgive me, kicked the round ball, right? Okay, good old sentence. So uh, dog is what? A noun is the subject of the sentence, good. Kicked would be the? Very, very good. Ball would also be a noun, and round would be a? An adjective, a word that describes. Interesting. Okay. Let's see. Um, What if we said... Richard is smart. Um, Richard would be the... A proper noun. Very good. A noun. Um, Smart would be a... An adjective. Very good. A word that describes, right? Okay, so we've got these. Now... If you, yeah, if you uh, don't mind the nightmares that it might bring back, grammar gets a little more complicated. There's this funny thing called a nominative adjective. You remember those? Yeah, of course you do. It's, it's this weird thing. When we take an adjective and we use it in a noun, it's a little less common in English than some other language, but we do it, right? So let's say, um, yeah, people who don't have a lot of money we would call poor, poor is an adjective, right? The Bible says something like this, blessed are the poor, right? Or we could say the poor are blessed. Are we having fun? (laughs) The poor. So poor was an adjective. Now we somehow turned it into a a noun, right? Um, Okay. So nominative adjectives, right? Take an adjective and make it a name or a noun. Uh, How about this one? We said Richard is smart. What if we said Writing is getting smart. Sorry. What if we said smarty pants knows a lot? <laughs> I don't know. Somehow we've taken smarty, smart, an adjective. We've turned it into a noun, right? Strange. I know you're wondering what we're doing. But we take an adjective and make it a name. We're actually pretty good at this. And though there's that big technical name called nominative adjective, we might also call it a nickname, right? Remember these? We take a descriptor, an adjective, and turn it into a name like... Oh, uh, slowpoke. Remember those? Um, Miss Athletic. Uh, silly, right? Silly is an adjective, but you call someone, hey, silly, or hey, slim, or hey, shorty. And Teacher Sherry took us through a bunch of these, right? We've got dummy, hottie. Here's some we've been hearing a lot lately. Some of you have heard of a green or a blue, right? Or an orange, a gold. We take, these are colors, these are adjectives, and somehow we start calling each other, well, I'm a gold, I'm a green, I'm a whatever, or fill in the blank, right? Think of those adjectives 
that have become names for people, for you. Because we're really good at that, aren't we? Call them nominative adjectives or call them nicknames, call them labels, titles, status, symbols, whatever. We're pretty good. Think about that for a little bit. We'll come back to that. Because we want to go back to our story. In our story, John is telling this great story about, about who? Remember, there's a, a guy that comes to Jesus, right? What does your Bible say as we were reading along? Who is this guy? The royal official, okay? We're going to do one more, put on your hat one more time and hang on. We're going to do a little something because your Bible say royal official or something like this. The word John used is one we're going to learn today. And if you're saying it's all Greek to me, you'd be right. <laughs> basilikos, okay? Can you say basilikos? Basilikos. This is a basilikos that comes to Jesus. Here's why it matters. Basilikos is, can you guess a noun or an adjective? Uh it's an adjective. It's an adjective. It's related to the word for king, but if you're really studying and you look at this, you realize this is an adjective. It only shows up a few times in the Bible. So when translators go to put it in English, they're wondering, what is this? This is an adjective. It means royal or kingly or something. Basically, it's like I would translate it as, you know, some royal guy or some royal dude, right? That's basically what it's saying. He's using royal as a name for this guy. In other words, and here's why it matters, John describes the guy who's coming to Jesus simply by a quality that he has. He's a royal guy coming to Jesus. You can imagine what it was like for this guy, right? This is, this is kind of his life. If he's a royal guy, that means he's probably part of the court of Herod. Remember King Herod? So this guy is part of that royal, coat, uh, royal court, and he probably wore a royal coat. <laughs> a robe, right? He would wear robes. He would probably not run a lot. He might walk some. He might not even do a lot because... He was used to, if he wanted something, he would just ask someone to do it for him, right? He had the robes, and when people saw the robes, they know he's a royal guy, a a basilikos, a royal official. And when he walked down the street, he was used to getting a lot of respect. When he needed something or wanted something, he was used to just sending someone to get it for him. He was used to having access to people that nobody else had access to and places that nobody else had access access to he's a royal guy that's all we know he doesn't have a name for us john just says he's a he's a basilikos he's a he's a royal guy we do this well don't we we use adjectives or titles or whatever to kind of box people in and say oh that's that's who i'm i'm a royal guy and he probably lived a lot of his life knowing well i'm a royal guy so it's all good then there are those moments aren't there where uh, have, have you seen those moments in life where suddenly all those adjectives and titles and, and things you're used to hanging on to, there are those moments where those don't matter anymore? If you've seen the movie Notting Hill, remember that one? Uh, classic romantic comedy, Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts. It's a story um, about an ordinary bookstore owner, Hugh Grant, just a, a normal Joe guy. Um, and Julia Roberts is a famous actress, Anna Scott, like superstar actress. Somehow they meet, somehow, surprisingly, they, they fall in love, but of course every story needs a moment of tension. Uh, she burns him a few times, and he's hurt so much he finally decides, forget it, I can't do this anymore. And then there's that moment in the movie, right? Like every romantic comedy 
of, of a line. And when I Googled this on the internet, some lists had it as one of the 10 worst movie lines of all time, and some had it as one of the 10 best, so I'll let you make that decision. But here's the line. You remember this one? Uh, here's the movie. You remember that? Here's the line. She comes back to him recognizing, I actually like this guy, and I've heard him, so I need to ask him. And she says, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Right? So you can decide. Top 10 best, top 10 worst, whatever. But you have those moments, right? Where suddenly it doesn't matter that she's a movie actress and he's a bookstore owner or whatever. Realizes in those moments of love and intensity and romance, all that stuff slips away. It doesn't matter who she is. She's just a girl asking a boy to love him. Because there are times, right, when, when those things don't matter nearly as much. I have a feeling that for this certain royal guy, this royal official that comes to Jesus in this story, probably he had come to one of those moments, don't you think? It was when his son got critically ill and he realizes this is not good. I mean, imagine what he would have done at first, being a royal guy with status and connections and titles and everything. He would have, he would have tried to use his connections to get to the best doctors. He would have gone to the priests and asked for them, their help. None of this is working. Um, he hopes and prays and worries, and yet he finds that all of it is failing him. His money, his status, his wealth, all of these are getting him nowhere this time, even though they usually do a lot. So he hears, apparently, as we read the story, that this miracle-working, itinerant rabbi, not quite as high on that status list, is, is moving from Jerusalem out into his region of Galilee where he probably has his huge mansion. He's in Capernaum. He hears that Jesus is now across the way at Cana. And so this time, instead of sending for someone, and this is probably strange for him, he decides, I have to go myself. And so this royal guy is taking out across the dusty paths. His robes are probably tangled between his legs. People probably notice, why is a royal guy moving so fast? Why hasn't he sent his servants on this errand? And he finds Jesus. John just describes it for us. He says, he asks, Jesus, please come to my home. My son is really sick. He needs you. Now, strange, if you're following along in the story, we get to this point, and Jesus' answer, as he often does, especially in John, is, is a little jarring. It's a little surprising. Because this man has just asked Jesus something very important, and Jesus, Jesus simply responds. He says, unless you all, and if we had Spanish Bibles or something, we would see this as plural, unless you all see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe in me. Kind of a harsh, strange statement. We could probably spend a whole, we could follow that path for quite a while. I, I noticed, uh, we, we would notice one thing is that if we're reading our Bibles closely and remembering the stories, there was a, another royal guy of a lot of importance named Pharaoh and Moses and the children of Israel there. And God says almost the same thing. He says, unless Pharaoh sees signs and wonders, he will still, even if he sees signs and wonders, he will still keep his heart hardened. So maybe Jesus is wondering if these royal people will open their hearts with signs and wonders. But whatever it is, it's a strange answer. And just like the Samaritan woman in the story before, it distracts from the real point, but the person asking for help stays on track. And here at this moment, if you see in the story, 
I think this is a, a very poignant moment. This one grabs a hold of me. Jesus has kind of changed the subject for a moment, and this man comes back and says, The royal man said, Sir, come before my little boy dies. He uses that word, little boy. He says, Sir, Lord, come. I need you. My little boy is dying. It's a moment of desperation on the part of this royal guy. And it doesn't fit well to see the robes and the titles and the status on his knees saying, Sir, please come. My little boy is dying. Because there are those moments, aren't there? Where his titles, his powers, all that stuff he had, it just it doesn't do anything. Here he is kneeling before Jesus. It's sort of all these things are just kind of lying there helpless and powerless beside this guy as he's pleading, my boy is dying. That's all that matters to me right now. Can you relate to this at all? Have you had those, those times when whatever it is, something in life that you've depended on, that you've hung on to, that has been a big deal for you? kind of the things that have defined who you are. Maybe it's something that's good. Maybe it's something you've been after. It's a a title you have at work. It's a title you have at home, like a great dad or a great mom. Maybe it's grades you get at school. Maybe it's other stuff. You've hung on to this stuff, and it's mattered a lot to you. Maybe it's some other stuff that's more negative. It's labels you never asked for, some of these, right? Right? And those have defined you. And then you come to those moments, like this man. His little boy is dying, and suddenly none of that stuff matters anymore. None of it works anymore. He's standing there needing help from Jesus. Jesus still doesn't do exactly what the man requests, right? He simply says to him, Get up, go, your boy lives. Go, your boy lives. The man had asked Jesus to come to his house, and he said and said, Just go, your son lives. And I love this next moment in the story. John says in verse 50, The man believed, trusted the word which Jesus said to him, and he went home. The man believed and trusted and went home. Did you now Watch carefully for something very subtle that John is doing. Did you hear what he called this guy this time? Did he call him the royal man, the basilikos? What did he call him? The man. It's anthropos. It just means human being, right? Suddenly, instead of a royal guy with titles and status and everything, he's come to the point where he realizes he is just a man, a human being, and he needs something from Jesus. And at that point, he puts, he, he believes in Jesus. This word is a great one. It has all these things wrapped up into it. He believed, he trusted, he put his faith in all of that together. He did that for Jesus. And at this moment, I think it's, it's important because we realize there is something, there is some kind of relationship, I think, between believing, putting your trust, putting your faith in Jesus, and letting go the titles and labels and adjectives and status and nicknames that we have. There's a relationship between these two things. They go together. It goes back and forth. If we're going to trust Jesus, 
it means that we're going to have to let go of a lot of these things that we've depended on for a very long time. Things we've thought about ourselves, things people have said about us. But then the more and more we trust Jesus, the easier and easier it is to let that stuff go. Those first few, the first few steps are, are the hardest, though. To, it's hard to let go of these things. Uh, sometimes it's painful. Um, remember, also in high school, I was part of the, the concert band, and we went on a trip one year to Colorado. And on this trip... It was April, and we thought, we're in Colorado, let's go skiing. Uh, Love to ski. It was uh, a part of my growing up years. And I also knew that if you go skiing in April, that's called spring skiing. And it's one thing that's important to remember is the sun is a lot more intense in April than it is in, say, January. So I knew that uh, I better grab some sunscreen. My skin is fair. Uh, And so I asked someone. I, I remember actually asking a friend, can I borrow some sunscreen? Somehow in that moment, we got distracted, and I went up the lift and forgot the sunscreen. And when I finished that day, my skin did not look pale, but it didn't really look tan either. It was bright lobster red, except for my sunglasses. I also discovered that one of my good friends had had the same problem. He had forgotten sunscreen, and he looked very similar to me. Uh, We went, slept on the gym floor that night when I woke up in the morning. I realized, thank you, I realized that uh, my face was already blistering. (laughs) It was awful. I remember playing my trombone, taking one of these and dabbing the blisters that were leaking. I'm sorry. It was was awful. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it was uh, not something to remember or share with people in public. Um, We got home the next week. My friend and I both had a similar experience. The, uh, the bright red had turned to sort of this toasty, crusty, burnt, dead skin, right? And we're sitting in our classes, and um, either by its own choice or by our nudging it along, these sheets <laughs> would start to peel off of this crusty, dead skin. And, and we would meet between classes in the guy's bathroom. Both of our moms were nurses. Both of our moms had sent with us a, a container of vitamin E cream, And so we would go after each class, that new bit of raw skin was there, and we would put the vitamin E cream on and scream together because it burned to be putting that cream on that new vulnerable skin. But we did it because we knew to get to some nice new skin again, the miracle of of the body and healing was that we had to go through that removal of the old stuff and the, the pain of the new stuff coming through. I think that's a little bit of what this man is going through. I think that's a little bit of what we go through as, as we come to that point where we realize, man, this stuff that we've depended on a lot isn't working. It can't get us to where we want to go, and we've got to let go of it. In fact, wouldn't you say that's, that's kind of what we do when we, when we go into this place, this, this baptismal pool? So we're saying, you know what? If I want new life, I'm going to have to go in here and leave all that old stuff behind. The stuff I've clung to, the stuff that has defined me, the stuff I've trusted in, I'm going to have to leave it behind and I come up a new person who's trusting just in Jesus for the things that I need. I think that's what we're doing. We, we have those moments where we've got to let go of the things we've clung to and trust Jesus for the life that we're longing for. The story of the man, there's one more part here that I love because the story doesn't end with that raw skin that's burning. It ends in another place. Look at, look at this man. So he's on his way home. 
right? He's trusted the words of Jesus. He's turned to go home, hoping his son will, will be, be well and alive. And on the way, his servants meet him and they have good news. Your son is alive. He's well, they tell him. Now imagine being this man on the way home in this moment. I wonder if he had a thought like this. Here he is surrounded with his servants again. He's excited by this good news. His son is okay. He's alive. And I wonder if for a moment he thinks to himself, maybe I was going to be okay anyway. Maybe my son was getting well from the doctors that treated him. Maybe I didn't need to go through all this fairly painful scene in front of Jesus. And so he asks the servants, exactly what hour did he get well? And the servants say it was the seventh hour. Is what John says. The father knew that that was the hour that Jesus had said, your son lives. And then the father believed in Jesus and even his whole household. He believes, but did you catch something else? What does John call this man now? Father. He's a royal guy, but he's just a man And now going home after meeting Jesus, he's a father. You think it's coincidence that John does this? Maybe, but I think he's getting at something very important, don't you? This man comes clothed in labels and adjectives and titles and status and all those things, but he realizes none of it works and he kind of gets stripped down to recognizing he's just a human being. But when Jesus sends him away, He sends him away, believing in him with his son well. He sends him away as that thing that I think the guy was longing to be all along, right? A father, a man who could love his son. He may have had robes and titles and everything, but don't you think deep down what he really wanted and what he realized in this moment that he just wants to be a father, a man who loves his son. Isn't that true for us? What we really want to be when we cut through all the stuff that we pile up around us in our lives, is we want to be people who are free to, to love well. We want to be people who are free to live in meaningful friendships and relationships. We want to be a man, a woman, who is free to really love their spouse well. We want to be a man or a woman who is free to, to love their children wonderfully. We want to be people who are free to Love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our minds. To love our neighbors without reserve. I think that's what we really want to be deep down, right? People who are free to love and to live well. I was reminded this week of a, of a man I have a, a lot of respect for. And I know Becky has read a book by him and she shares that respect. His name is Father Greg Boyle. He's a, maybe you've heard of him. He's a priest in Los Angeles. He runs a ministry called Homeboy Industries, which is not your typical name for a church. But, uh, and now they have Homegirl Cafe or something along with it. Basically, he has devoted himself to working with recovering gang members in Los Angeles. He takes uh, young men and now young women who are wanting to get out of the gang life, which is very difficult to do, and he helps them find a new life. He helps them learn how to work well and learn how to survive on their own. And one of the first things he does, a service that he offers, is pretty profound. As you know, a tattoo for a gang member means a lot. In fact, it's one of those things that makes it almost impossible for them to escape that identity that they had as a gang member. Even when they leave, they've always got that symbol attached to them. So Father Boyle 
offers with several doctors who know laser uh, uh, tattoo removal technology. To f- they, they offer the service of freely removing the tattoo. They call it, uh, the, the ministry is called Jastuvo Tattoo Removal. Should not have tried that, but uh, it, in Spanish, it basically means I'm done. It's gone. Uh, it's in the past, right? Is that about right? <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's a painful process, as you can imagine, to get these tattoos removed. It takes eight to ten treatments over about a whole year. Quite painful. But would you guess what the retention rate is for Father Boyle's young men that come in? It's just about 100%. Every one of these guys knows that if they want new life, they've got to go through the pain of letting go of those labels that have defined them for so long. If they want the kind of free life they're looking for, they've got to let go of that past. And it may be painful for them to go through it, but they're absolutely willing to do it. So what are the things that that you're hanging on to this morning? What are the things in your life that define you, that the labels that you're wearing, maybe they're labels you've sought after yourself and they kind of feel good. Maybe they're the labels that people have put on you and you haven't wanted to carry for a long time. But the question I think for us this morning is, can we let go of those? And will we let go of those things? Will we stop believing in all those nicknames and labels and titles and status things that we've trusted in for so long? And will we instead put our trust, our belief, our faith in the one who wants to give us life? The one who loves us. The one who wants to give us our proper name to let us be who he's made us to be. So may, may you find what you're seeking. May you discover and come to know a God who loves you, not for the labels, but who loves you for who you, he, he's made you to be. May you find the joy and freedom that comes in following Jesus and trusting in him. God bless you.